0: Our scripture is Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 through 15, the law and the ban. Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 through 15, the law and the ban. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments, and the statutes, and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass if ye hearken to these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swore unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep and the land which he swore unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. This entire chapter is a very important one. In the eight verses preceding our reading and the verses following it we have the ban that is a declaration whereby God says that all the nations of Canaan are to be executed to be destroyed to be utterly wiped out. The problem that faces the modern church with regard to this chapter is what to do with it and the answer of the church today both evangelical and liberal has been that this is a part of the old testament covenant and is therefore no longer applicable and therefore it is only of historical concern to us It is important, therefore, to analyze this subject very carefully. We began our analysis of the significance of the law as it is declared in the promises of the law and in the epilogue to the law. It is true what these critics of this chapter say, that this is a part of covenant law. The covenant law is not restricted to Israel the covenant circumscribes all men without exception we cannot understand the Bible unless we realize that no man living or dead has ever been or ever shall be outside the covenant of God the original covenant was with Adam It was renewed with Noah. It has been since expanded through Moses and Jesus Christ. But we cannot understand the meaning of the covenant unless we understand that all men are related to the covenant either as covenant keepers or covenant breakers. There is no other possible relationship. No man can say the covenant belonged to Israel or the covenant belongs to the church or the covenant is limited to one period of history. It is an everlasting covenant. It circumscribes all men in every age. Therefore, all men are inescapably tied to the covenant and its promises of love and hate of blessings and curses. Christ, in renewing the covenant, made it clear that all men were involved in it. In John 12, verses 32 and 33, we read, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, the sentimentalists try to say, well, this means that everybody's going to be attracted to Jesus Christ or everybody's going to be saved ultimately and so on. What it means simply is that he now is the center of the covenant. Everything is in terms of him and men are cursed or blessed in terms of him and his law word. Jesus was the divine renewer of the covenant of God with man. As such, all men now are judged, drawn in terms of him who is now the principle of judgment, of salvation, of curses, and of blessings. As a result, the covenant law judges every man, and the Lord of the covenant, Jesus Christ, Judges every man. Jesus Christ is the great judge. Therefore every man faces him. And every man faces him in terms of the covenant. And the law of the covenant. Do they believe in him? And if they believe in him have they obeyed him for If we believe in him, we keep his commandments. The covenant God in this passage identifies himself as God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments. He alone is the sovereign Lord, reliable and faithful, and what he has said, he declares he will do. An aspect of this trustworthiness, this faithfulness of God, is his jealousy and wrath, his hate and his love, his blessings and his curses. What he plainly says in this passage is that he will exercise retribution. He promises to repay, as the tenth verse makes clear, those who hate him by destroying them. He does not delay with those who hate him but repays them personally as the Berkeley version translates it. In other words, God reacts to all covenant breakers personally and intensely. Retribution therefore must be applied by men because God, first of all, applies it. It is a principle of justice. He blesses and he curses. He gives fertility of womb, of land, of flocks and of herds, and freedom from the notorious evil diseases of Egypt. God asserts his sovereign rights. And in verse 12, he refers to his judgments and his blessings. The word judgment as it is used here is a very interesting word. We think of judgments in the English as court decisions. In the Hebrew, the word means rightful claims and rights. God is the great king, therefore, When he announces his judgments, exercises, or announces his rights, which are to be rendered to him by his subjects and his servants, the judgments of God, therefore, are declarations of his rights, and any man who falls afoul of his rights gets the back of his hand. God's law, therefore, is an assertion, because his law is called his judgments. It is an assertion both of his righteousness and of his rights. So when God declares his law, the Ten Commandments and all the subordinate laws, God is declaring his rights. Hence, he has a right to love and to hate, to curse and to bless in terms of all men's reaction to his rights he promises fertility and abundance to all who obey him this is also a very important point it means that there is a blessing inherent in the law even to the ungodly to those who do not believe in God or in Jesus Christ For to the extent that they honor the rights of God, they are blessed. If they do not commit adultery nor rob, if they respect the earth and give the earth its due and its rest, they are blessed materially, even though spiritually they are reprobate. This is why... Pagan, ungodly nations have risen more than once to great power in history because they had had a basic respect for the fundamentals of God's law, and they have fallen as they have despised these basic principles. Thus it is possible... Or nations which are nominally Christian, as the Western countries are, to be cursed. And nations which are anti-God, as the Soviet Union, to be blessed if they should begin to abide by God's law. I indicated earlier that in the rest of this chapter, the verses before and after our reading, we have the ban, B-A-N. The ban is the total judgment on people who deny God's law. And the Canaanites received this total punishment. We are told that their iniquity was full that they were morally offensive to God. Now, the ban can be only issued by God, not by man. By the ban, God declares that a people are outside of his law and under sentence of death, that they are total outlaws in his sight. The ban is the reversal of communion. It declares an end of communion with God and man and is a death sentence. Now, we need to understand the significance of communion in order to understand the meaning of the Communion Communion and community can exist where there are strong personal differences and enmity. People can disagree. They can disagree strongly and still have communion. A very interesting illustration of this from Vanderloo is worth quoting. As he illustrates the fact of communion and community, Vanderloo writes, and I quote, Today the finest example is still a peasant who has no feelings but simply belongs to his community as contrasted with a citizen invented in the 18th century. Even peasants who fight or engage in lawsuits remain neighbors and brothers. A peasant in the eastern Netherlands who has a mortal enemy in the village nevertheless knows that on market days he is obliged to greet his foe And walk up and down with him once, when the peasant community of the whole district is gathered in the county town, thus demonstrating to the eyes of strangers the fellowship of the village. Unquote. Now this custom is very important, and it is an ancient one which was once commonplace ...in the various communities of Europe, and it was also present in some of the villages of the United States. The point of such a custom was this. It recognized that disagreements, very serious, ugly ones, existed. That lawsuits could be in progress between two people. But that such differences are a part of life in community and a form of community that they can be instrumental in furthering community. Now, let's illustrate this by putting it on a different level. Marriage. The best marriages are the ones in which there are fights. Why? Because then the husband and wife iron out the problems if they are godly people, and it draws them closer together. In a marriage where either the husband or wife is always agreeable, the marriage never has the depth, but a marriage where there are tensions and they are resolved. Thus differences can bring people closer together by bringing problems to the surface for settlement. Thus the old custom that Vanderloo describes which still prevails today today in eastern Netherlands recognizes this it says that there have to be differences there have to be lawsuits there have to be fights and sometimes ugly ones between neighbors because this is the only way problems can be settled therefore These are not things that are destructive of communion and community. A community requires dissension and disagreement in order to have progress. There is never progress without problems, tensions, and resolutions. The ban is something radically different. It means an end of community. It indicates a situation beyond disagreement. About a week and a half ago, Dorothy and I visited some friends of ours who live on a farm. And they were describing the daughter-in-law of a friend who is probably as sick a character as uh, can be described who has fought with everyone in the area and fought in a most ugly manner. And this friend uh, was saying that she had only met this young woman twice. And on the second occasion, she came by at the house for just a moment and started to pick a fight. And Bertha's reaction was a very healthy one. Don't try to pick a fight with me. I don't know you that well. I thought that was an inspired bit of feminine logic. There's no community between us, so there can be no fight. And that was that. Now, a ban means the end of community. It indicates a situation beyond disagreement where the curse has taken over. God's curse. And the people are beyond communion or community, beyond disagreement. They are under judgment. We do have instances in scripture of curses pronounced by men. The curse is a valid thing. And our prayer should ask not only for God's blessing, but also for God's curse on those who are hardened in their lawlessness. In a curse, man invokes God to judge a man or a people he regards as beyond communion, whose sin requires total judgment. But we must remember that God will not hearken to an undeserved curse. And a very conspicuous case of this is Balaam in Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. Or rather, Balaam in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, we are told that the undeserved curse is turned by God into a blessing. When God pronounces curses which appear in the law, he places all those who are disobedient to that law under a ban. There are certain curses we cannot pronounce. We are forbidden to curse rulers or judges in exodus twenty two twenty eight It is for God to curse them, and He will when they disobey his law. Thus, the curses are already pronounced. We are forbidden to curse parents, Exodus 21:17 and the death in Le- Leviticus 19:14. The fact of the ban and of curses and the fact that blessings apply to nations who are unbelievers makes clear the fact that the scope of the law is beyond Israel and beyond the Old Testament. When God gave the law, he had all men and all nations in mind. At this point, the Talmud, which is sometimes very much like our modernist preachers in its contempt of the word of God, was right when it declared that because God owned the entire earth, all the heathen are accountable to God and his law for the care of the earth for obedience to the law of God and for the time this point is true there is nothing in the law which says any man or any nation is an exemption to it to deny the law is to deny the victory or the blessing because victory and blessing are the same thing which the law promises. And it is at this point that modern evangelicalism as well as earlier Protestantism went sadly astray. We saw last week, and we shall see further in a few weeks, uh, Luther and Langton, and also Calvin, having first affirmed the law, later tended to reject the law. And they did that. They rejected victory. It is a sad fact that the Lutherans actually wrote this into their confession, the Augsburg Confession. The Reformed Confessions did not. The Augsburg Confession, Article 17, declares of the Lutheran churches that, and I quote, they condemn others also who now scatter Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world. The wicked being everywhere suppressed, the saints alone, the pious, shall have a worldly kingdom and shall exterminate all the godless, unquote. In other words, the Augsburg Confession condemned all those who believe that the cause of Christ shall triumph in history. As a result, the movement of Lutheranism was from victory to defeat, and the same was true of Luther. It's not surprising that a man who began so gloriously, and who has placed us all in debt, should have ended sadly. And as last years were full of tears and doubts and fear, he moved from victory to defeat. The death mask of Luther is rarely ever reprinted by any Protestant book because it shows us so tragic an aspect. It is unfortunate that we have to call attention to these things, but there is no progress unless we take the good that others have done and build on those things and avoid their errors. It's not surprising that a Catholic scholar, and one of the most brilliant of our generation, Friedrich here, has pointed out the fact that the End result of Luther's position was that he went right back to Thomism and to Thomistic natural law ideas. In other words, everything he had tried to do, he had undone. Having denied the law, the Lutherans and the early Calvinists retreated into ineffectual pietism and Protestantism was only rescued by the rise of the Puritans. When men deny the law of God, they deny the blessings of the law, the victory which the law gives. When God makes it clear that even the ungodly, who to any degree obey the law by their care of the earth by their stable homes and their avoidance of adultery will become great in him how much greater will be those who believing in him obey his law how great their victory shall be let us pray Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Thou hast shown us the way to victory and blessing. Grant that we, as individuals and as a nation, walk in this way. Thou seest, O Lord, how all around us they make void Thy law. They despise Thy word and Thine only begotten Son. They reject. Grant, O Lord, that we may be used to reestablish the sovereignty of thy word. Recall our nation and its people to faith in Jesus Christ and to obedience to thy law word. That again we may be a land blessed of thee. Use us, O Lord, to this end in Jesus' name. Man. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. and destruction and therefore there is nothing but a curse for them yes I didn't hear that no they have been moving towards that steadily you see it's been the logic of their position so that Evangelical Protestantism has progressively grown more and more lawless, especially in the last generation or two. Seventy-five, a hundred years ago, there was still some regard for the centrality of the law in evangelical circles. But with each generation, it has receded to the point now where radical antinomianism is taking over. Yes. their next position will be that they will progressively make common cause with other religions insofar as they are spiritual yes the differences between the evangelicals and pagan pietism will diminish As a result, you already see the tendency to see good in pagan piety. Any other questions? If there are none, I'd like to share a few things with you. I called your attention a while back to the article in the review of the news for July the 8th, I believe, on Reverend Robert Soburn and his school, Fairfax Christian School. The interesting thing is this. I was talking to Bob Soburn last night by telephone, and he told me that one out of every hundred readers or subscribers to the review of the news have written to him for information, about how to start a Christian school which indicates uh, something of the direction of things today they have never had a response to any article in the review of the news to equal the response to this article and that I think is very heartening news I mentioned also some time ago that. Pupil who was a subnormal. That was in his school. One of uh, four children placed by a, a prominent official in Washington in his school until they could find a special school. His IQ was 67. And when he was tested by a psychologist at the end of the school year, which was the fourth grade this last spring, he was at grade or well above grade in every subject so they're keeping him in the school he will be in the fifth grade starting this week and uh, their feeling was no special school could teach him as much as Fairfax Christian so it is interesting that that school which everyone says well it's for exceptional children is doing so much for a child who is so very subnormal then another item of interest. I was happy recently to pick up a copy of an old book, almost a hundred years old, that I've been looking for for some time. It's Howard Carroll's Twelve Americans: Their Lives and Times. It was written almost a hundred years ago about twelve famous Americans whose lives. Uh, span the first of the century, the last century, to old oh, 70s, approximately. Some not quite as long. And it is a beautiful account of life in America in those days. The first of these is about the farmer statesman Horatio Seymour, who was one of the great governors of New York and a candidate for the presidency. And I think the account of his life in the early years of the 1800s, he was born in 1810 in central New York, are very interesting. I quote, The conditions under which his early life was passed were indeed remarkable ones. The people of his native village, like those of every other community then established in central New York, were poor. Constantly engaged in a struggle to gain food and clothing. At the same time, however, they were contented and hopeful. They were inspired by kindly sympathies which sprang from common wants. All intercourse was upon a level. No man envied his neighbor, for nowhere did the glare of wealth put poverty to shame. Coming as most of them did from the old and to a certain extent cultured settlements of Massachusetts and Connecticut, One of their first cares was to provide schools for their children. There were no public schools or state schools then. These were all Christian schools. Mm -hmm. To this end, no effort was spared. And Mr. Seymour relates, as within his own recollection, the fact that some of the men of Pompeii put mortgages upon their lands that proper institutions of learning might be furnished for the boys and schools of the settlement. To erect churches, they made equal sacrifices, And when all other means failed, it is um, a matter of record that in order to attract a crowd of hardy backwoodsmen to aid in lifting up the framework of one of their places of worship, they announced that when the steeple had been so erected, an adventurous youth who had more love for the cause than regard for his neck would stand upon his head on its topmost point. That's a new way to get a crowd out to work. So, too, when the pews were sold, the deacons placed upon the pew chairs a bucket of rum punch to make more liberal the spirits of the bidders for seats. It has, with much truth, been said that those were the days of vital piety, sound democracy, and pure liquor. That, incidentally, was a common saying about the first half of the last century, that it was, they were days of good religion,ers, vital piety, sound democracy, and pure liquor. They were, at least, days in which men of all occupations, classes, and conditions mingled together with the utmost freedom. The village inn was then the chief place of public resort, and in its ample room, warmed by a great fire of blazing logs, farm laborers and lawyers, doctors and shopkeepers, clergymen and publicans, met upon an equal footing to talk over the affairs of their district of the state and of the nation. Such discussions were open to everyone who cared to take part in them. Men of all parties then heard both sides of questions which agitated the public mind. They learned to temper their prejudices, correct their opinions. And ministers of the gospel, lawyers and politicians, knowing more of human nature than do their fellows of the day, gained greater personal following and knew better how to retain the regard of their constituents. If I may pause there. You see, this is what made for the great oratory of those days. If you wonder how... Uh, A man with only a fourth-grade education like Lincoln became the powerful speaker he did, or how his opponent, Stephen Douglas, the little giant, was the spellbinder he was. Remember, they would gather together in the inn and debate and discuss by the hour, and it made for very eloquent speakers. It was a training that doesn't exist today. His father, Henry Seymour, afterward an honored public servant of the Empire State, was then one of the men of consequence in the village of Ponte, But at a time when men of all classes were at a moment's notice called upon to protect each other from the attack of some adventurous bear or wolf, as the early settlers of central New York were more than once obliged to do Exclusiveness was not one of the marks of distinction. Young Seymour was taught when in his infancy that no man in this country is better than another, and that the most exalted in the land, if they will take the trouble, can learn many a useful le- a lesson from the humblest. He never in after life forgot these truths, and to his remembrance of them, as well as to other impressions which he received in the ho- home of his infancy, he may well attribute much of the popularity which in the years that followed made him a leader of the American people. Now, there are many such very delightful passages in this book, but the interesting thing then was that there was a basic education, a very, quite different from the richest and the poorest, and more of a democracy in those days than now when we've made democracy a byword can exist. Are there any other questions or comments before? Yes. That's the heart of it. Everyone agreed on something, on a basic faith. This is what made them all more equal in ability, you see. That is, the differences were nullified. Now, we just discussed a little while ago Fairfax Christian School. Now, consider the democracy that exists there between a superior child and a child who is a high-grade moron because a common faith a common concern for every child tends to nullify the differences and that child of an IQ of 67 who's sitting with children of 150 doesn't have the gap between himself and the other children that you have say in a public school and I can cite from other books of the same area describing the life, say, of Western New York or Central New York of the day that the faith was so strong and so intense among everyone in such communities that in one case where there was someone who was an atheist they felt the person was insane. An atheist was an insane person. It was just unbelievable to them. And they were actually put away. They thought that such a person should be confined. Now that's the kind of unity of faith there was, and therefore there was a community possible. Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, in those days uh you had a more rural population. The population was predominantly rural. This made for a difference. These were men who were farm owners or had little businesses in the villages they were a more responsible population now the liquor problem became a problem in the United States when you began to develop large urban cities with increasingly irreligious populations as a result the rootlessness of the people that inhabited the cities did lead to problems Moreover, in many big cities, water was not readily made available for drinking, and this was often on purpose. Uh, In some western towns, or cities rather, like Seattle and San Francisco, a few wealthy people made fountains available by their will. there's a lot of fountain in San Francisco, which was established years and years and years ago. And it dropped the percentage of drunkenness rapidly because water was made available to the sailors when they landed. So uh, everything was done to make liquor more available and water less available to people who were working in these cities. Now, the consequence was also that these people these large urban populations could be more readily controlled by liquor. As a result, your political bosses through World War I were connected with the distilleries and breweries. Election Day, very few people knew how they voted. There was free liquor at every bar. Therefore, They went to the bar to get the free liquor before they voted, and then the politicians saw to it they stayed all day there, and other men would run to the poll and vote for them, or they would buy their votes to do this. As a result, the country was becoming controlled increasingly as far as the big city votes were concerned by political bosses who were in the pay of the distilleries and the brewers now meanwhile as a part of the pattern of this most of the factories were having more and more problems because of alcoholism as a result prohibition was not brought in because of the WCTU or the church groups that may have been working for it it was brought in because Factory owners in the various cities decided the only way to restore any kind of efficiency was to do this, Plus, people were concerned about the intense corruption of politics. Now, the first strategy was evangelism. As a result, some of the evangelists of the day, like uh, Billy Sunday, were actually financed heavily subsidized by mill owners and factory owners who would put on the evangelistic campaign and bring someone like Billy Sunday, who uh, tended to be a showman, had been a famous ball player, and put on an evangelistic campaign in the hopes that it would straighten out some of their workers and they wouldn't have the radical problems they did with alcoholics. However, after this proved to be insufficient then they voted in prohibition now one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us is if bars are again opened on election day because it will make again possible the kind of political control that existed up to the time of prohibition this is why many of the politicians who work for repeal had earlier worked for prohibition and they stipulated that on election days the bars were to be closed because they were afraid of what would happen. When you study the history of the prohibition movement in California, you find that it was many of the reforming politicians and newspapermen who knew what was going on who were themselves drinking men who worked for prohibition. So this was the uh, background. Yes and no. Uh, that's a long problem. Basically, the law was a violation of liberties of an individual, and it tried to replace by law what character should do. But the evils have been exaggerated. You had the various gangs ruling the cities before, in some respects in a far more ugly fashion. So while uh, a great deal has been said about the gangs and their activities in the 20s, uh, nothing has been said about the far more violent activities in the teens. And in Wilson's day, the can- kind of gang warfare you've had and the total ruthlessness, the mass murders, that's been uh, covered up. So both sides of the story need to be recognized. Well, our time is up. Let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.